I didn't go to Yale or Stanford or Harvard, right? I could just say like at 22, like, you know, oh, like I'm not going to get that job, which means the entirety of my life trajectory is already completely altered. Mm. That's not the case in DeFi. Yeah. You know, it gives people a fighting chance. It gives people hope. And that's the kind, that's the thing that like, I just love about this industry, man. Welcome back to another episode of Lights, Camera, Crypto, the podcast exploring all things entertainment and Web3. I'm your host, Stephen Ladden, and this week's guest is Azim Khan. Azim is the fundraising and partnerships lead at Gitcoin and has a really fascinating story. He was initially pursuing med school, uh, had a near-death experience, dropped out of med school, started working with artists, got into the Web3 space, and that's sort of how he ended up where he is now. He's got a very entrepreneurial background, a very entrepreneurial spirit, has a very almost spiritual approach to the way he lives his life. At every step of the way, as he'll talk about in this episode, he was pursuing what he wanted to pursue and learned to just let the rest go. So there are a lot of other holistic spiritual nuggets to Azim's path that are very worth listening to and and taking something from. So let's dive in. Azim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, man. I know that scheduling this has been a bunch of back and forth for some time now, but I'm glad we finally got to it. Likewise, you know, and and I think that's part of the new uh, accepted form of of interviews and and podcasts and just scheduling in general in this uh, post-COVID era. You know, it's become, uh, I think everybody's just a little more lenient, you know? Yeah. Although I will say I I do miss and I'm looking forward to seeing some shows that are going to be like in a nice studio, in a nice couch where it's like, you know, six cameras in a room doing interviews for one person. And there's like different cuts happening, similar to like what LeBron James and them do with the shop or things like that. I'm really looking forward to to that kind of content in this space. But especially at the moment, you're right. Like this is exactly what makes sense. Totally, totally. And uh, yeah, it will be it will be interesting to see if if that then becomes if we revert back to that or or if, if this format uh if it's a hybrid yeah. of both you know yeah 100 percent. well again uh thank you so much for, for for joining on and uh really excited to hear about your story as far as that goes you know maybe talk a little bit about what early azim was into you know was it was it uh finance was it uh numbers had how, how did your early sort of trajectory and early interests kind of lay the groundwork for where you are now? I'd say it depends how early we're going to go. I was, uh, I was one of those kids that was hustling, doing arbitrage from a very young age. So like, you know, when I was in third grade, I would go buy boxes of Starburst or I would have my dad go buy me boxes of Starburst. And then I knew that when lunchtime came in middle school or grade school, whatever third grade is, that people would spend $1.75 on lunch. And so they would get a quarterback. And so I would walk around selling Starbursts for 10 cents each or three for a quarter. Uh, I'm upgraded to Pokemon cards, I did basketball cards. I was arbitraging Air Force Ones when I was in high school and Mitchell and Ness jerseys and like, like Ralph Lauren polo shirts. And like, it just like whatever it was that I could get my hands on that people were looking for. And so in the sense of just like, always being interested in not necessarily having to abide by 
working a typical nine to five to make enough money to buy sneakers when I was a kid. And I mean, I still buy way too many sneakers now. I'd say like, <laughs> you know, the, the backdrop would be that uh, in later years, man, I've, I've always just been interested in a variety of things. My background's actually in biology. I have a bachelor's and a master's in bio. I was uh, going to be going to medical school. I was working in biotech in 2012 and applying to med schools, doing interviews, and just spending time on Twitter. I got onto Twitter in 2008, 2009, something like that. And I had just started seeing people talking about Bitcoin, you know, while I was at this job and was just like sort of like lightly looking into it. Like I won't pretend like I set up my own mining rig or anything like that. It was just like, this looks cool. Like, let me look into this. And I ended up running the Boston Marathon with the bombings in 2013. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so there'd been quite some time that like, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to go to medical school, but I put so much time, effort and money into it that I think I was just like doing it because I'd done it already for years. And I was living in Cambridge at the time too. So I was there for the Boston lockdown and it was just a week of serious introspection to say the least. And I was just like, you know what? I, uh, I can't do this medicine thing mm. and, and ended up rescinding applications from medical school, including ones that I'd been accepted by. And I quit a really good biotech job where I was working on antibody sequencing. And I have a master's thesis in circularized human genome sequencing. Completely nothing to do with what I do now. Completely <laughs> nothing, right? I do have to pay back those student loans at some point still. So I'm hoping like crypto money ends up being enough to help me get there sooner rather than later. Sure. Uh, hopefully the 10K from Biden comes through. But yeah, when I ended up walking away from that, I'd been working on a tech startup part time. And I also started writing for the Huffington Post at the same time. Uh, they, they'd been asking about people's experiences from the Boston lockdown. And I submitted a piece around being a Muslim American runner who was a victim and not a suspect in, in the attacks and sort of tried creating like some sort of empathy at a time where there was a lot of finger pointing going on. And the piece went viral. And I just at that time jumped into startups full time. Like I had, it was an app that allowed you to buy and sell photos on your smartphone uh, and just licensing of photos and videos and hustled enough press. I was living in Boston still at the time. And, you know, we ended up raising some angel money at the time. And I was just sitting on Twitter all like in my free time and seeing more and more about this Bitcoin stuff in 2012, 2013. I'd done some buying and selling of, of Bitcoin, but in the end of 2013, was when I ended up writing a piece about the New York City Bitcoin Center that was opening. I don't know if it's still open now or if it's turned into something else, but at the time it was the NYC Bitcoin Center and I got to meet some Bitcoin OGs. They were hosting a New Year's Eve party for the opening of the place. So I ended up attending that and meeting a bunch of people who were selling like Bitcoin and I think it was Dogecoin too, using QR codes, just like screaming in a room. It was it was crazy, right? Yeah. So I ended up just like sort of writing about it, but it it picked my it picked my interest a little bit more than being like, oh, this is just like a way where I can buy and sell this speculative asset that's going to put me in a position to like buy more of the frivolous things that I wanted to as a 
24 year old at the time. And so when I did that, it was like an eye opening experience and having conversations with people in the space. And then from there, early 2014, I was in a place where I was actually leaving that startup that I had started. I was like starting a dev shop. But as a joke, I was like, you know, I'd seen the whole like Koine West thing happening. I don't know if you remember that. But yeah. as a joke, I was like, yo, you know what? I'm going to start Kim Coindashian. And I was like, because that'll put me in a great position to piggyback off the press. And sure. and it was just like a troll. Like, by no means was it something where I, I expected to really put out a currency or anything like that. It was just like a random internet meme troll that I went for. And I got a lot of press really quickly, like really quickly. Like Newsweek had covered us. Crypto Coin News had covered us like the Daily Dot. Like there was a bunch of publications that that are right away were like, this is a funny story. And most of it was as an excuse to shit on cryptocurrency, even sure. though like this is things have gone the way of the tulip. Look at this. And in doing so, I remember sitting back and being like, wait, like, what if Kim did launch her own currency? Or like, what if the Mavericks had a currency? Like that would actually be fascinating, right? Yeah. So so it again, like further opened my eyes, even though like it wasn't supposed to be serious. I ended up getting the cease and desist and I wasn't able to move <laughs> forward. <laughs> I wasn't able to move forward with it anyway, but it was just one of those things that again, like was eye-opening. And in an unrelated place, like I started using the HuffPost like to just interview hip hop artists. Like I was doing a dev shop. I was uh, just like a, fan of hip-hop i still am very much so i was watching the untrapped little baby documentary on prime video earlier today and so if, if anybody who's listening hasn't seen it definitely watch it but i just started interviewing hip-hop artists like in, in a completely unrelated way and continued along like paying attention to crypto but not being involved in a in a day-to-day -day fashion by any means and 2017 i ended up looking into what was going on with all the ICOs and got involved in some ICOs, made some money, lost some money, sort of like everyone else who was involved at that time. I did some marketing stuff for some of the companies in the space, got to make some relationships, got to see people like making a ton of money, lost wallet addresses that had money, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, that came and went in 2019. I tried raising money for a crypto gaming company. Uh, so I was alluding to I have a lot of relationships in the media and entertainment space. And I had decided, I don't know if you're a gamer, I wanted to make Super Smash Brothers, but with rappers, basketball players, influencers. Amazing. Yeah. And I wanted everything in the game to be an NFT. And this was really around when like Yeezys were really starting to like really pop and like like looking at just the artificial scarcity that had been there. And I was just like, if you only put 10,000 Kanye West NFTs in the game and then you had like a marketplace for trying to sell them afterwards and anyone who wanted to use Kanye in the game had to buy one of these and that was just it. Uh, so it's like similar to what OpenSea was trying to do. You know, I'd spoken to them about potentially joining at the time as well, but that didn't end up working out. Uh, they were they were still, it was early 2020 when I spoke to them, late 2019. But, uh, but yeah, as I was trying to raise money for this game in 2019, every investor I spoke to told me crypto and gaming don't go together. Really? 
Yeah, yeah. I won't name any names publicly, but like the biggest firms were like, here's our gaming division. And they were like, I speak to them and they're like, yeah, like this isn't this isn't gaming. This is crypto. You should go talk to the crypto people and go talk to the crypto people. And they'd be like, yeah, like this isn't crypto. You should talk to the gaming people. <laughs> I was like, this is a fucking clusterfuck. Yeah. It, I mean, it's it's ironic, like, you know, looking at things years later, but that's just how it is. Like, traditionally, I'd say 99% of VCs have zero conviction and, and like no original thoughts. And so, you know, some of them are remarkable at, not that he's a VC, but one of the people who did actually believe in the idea was Balaji. And so this was like in mid 2019, I had sent him some DMs and was like, you know, what do you think about the idea? And he was like, I actually think the idea works as long as you have the relationships in the entertainment industry. And I'd pitched him on being an angel and he was just busy at the time and I wasn't getting any other funds. But like, I always, to his credit, like he responded and we had a convo about it. He said it worked. And so, you know, that was cool. But ultimately, because I couldn't raise funds, I ended up at a company named Aglet, which is like uh, Pokemon Go for sneakerheads and very much so the precursor to Steppen. I don't know if you've mm. seen Steppen, but like, uh, it's a Solana based game uh, where it's like all based with crypto. They had some massive growth and then like massive declines earlier this year. But Aglet was basically you collect virtual sneakers in the form of like you collect sneakers in the form of like these virtual skins. And then you take a look at the attributes that they have on how quickly they degrade and their earning power. And you would earn in-game currency for going out into the real world and walking and doing different yeah so it was like a it was a really interesting game we launched right when covid hit i joined as uh the head of growth and partnerships when they were still in stealth and the game's been very successful even my time there we were very successful i i can't take all credit i think like because of the fact that we were in the middle of covid like there was a lot of people who had nothing to do and they needed a reason to be able to take a walk so they downloaded the game as a way to like get sure. gamify the gamify their yeah, walking gamify experience. The, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, but you know, did that for 2020. We did very well. We did. I think. I think we were the first thing. Uh, we did a partnership with Gucci, and I think we were the first like metaverse play that Gucci tried getting into when they were launching something called like Gucci's Gucci Garage or something. Like it was like digital versions of physical shoes. Something like that. Yeah. But like, you know, along the line, and I was, uh, it was an interesting time because I got a chance to have conversations and help educate lots of companies like in what the metaverse even meant. You know, so I was talking to Gucci and Versace and Armani and Stadium Goods and Nike and Adidas. And these companies were like, what is the metaverse? Uh, so it was a really interesting time. But ultimately, in 2021, I got approached by some Web3 investors who were like, we like your background, and especially with the entertainment stuff. And we want you to launch like a Web3 version of Kickstarter, basically. Sweet. Specifically for crowdfunding for creators. And ended up, you know, raising money for that, launching a product. Uh, I didn't launch a token. The company launched a token. And there's like gray areas around that. <laughs> We had to go out of our way to separate everything. It was interesting, like, like how how all of it had to play out in terms of tokens. I uh, like stayed away from that side, but like the company did launch a token. We launched the product. Everything worked, but man, bull market launching a company is stressful, bro. 
Like, I it bet. Is, it is stressful. Uh, and completely got burnt out. And then I think, like, we were seeing that I think we were a little bit too early for what we had launched. I think it could, it will end up happening, but for what we were doing, it just wasn't hitting. And the company made the decision that they wanted to pivot to funding guilds and like Web3 gaming. And so I ended up stepping away in December and did some consulting for a couple months, you know, into 2021, early 2022 with different brands and like agencies who are looking to understand the Web3 space a little bit more. And then ultimately uh, I had done Kernel, which is a Gitcoin spinoff. And I was interested in potentially starting an Impact DAO or something along those lines. And I had a conversation with the team at Gitcoin about, you know, what would what would it take to like do a grant? And they were like, well, we could do that. But like, would you be interested in potentially joining the company? We, we like need some help on partnerships. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And so, you know, fast forward a couple months and I help lead our partnerships and fundraising efforts now at Kitcoin, which is like the dopest job possible. That's awesome. And and I love how it kind of, it sounds like each step of the way, you really, you were from, from the early entrepreneurship, you know, selling Starburst to the biotech uh, experience, you know, all the, all, all along the way, it sounded like you were pursuing your interests, pursuing what excited you. And then yeah, kind of listened to your internal compass of, is this fulfilling me? Even if it's something that's interesting, mm-hmm. am I, am I, am I being fulfilled? So what, just to, to, to kind of back, backtrack a little bit, what gave you the sort of confidence to step away from biotech and, and actually make that shift? Cause that's a, that's a pretty big move for, you know, to, to be going along that path. I think it was just a near-death experience, <laughs> you know? Like, I I was at mile 24 when the military quarantined us from, like, finishing the race, basically. And I would have been at the finish line had I not run with a friend that day. He had run with me for the first 16 or 17 miles of, of the race and slowed me down by, like, enough minutes per mile compared to my training that... Had I not been like, yo, fuck it, bro, like, let's just run together. Like, we're not trying to win this. Like, we're just trying to finish that I would have been at the finish line. And yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I was living in Cambridge at the time. It was a quarter mile away from where the alleged attackers or the attackers, I never know the right wording, but like where they lived and like the mosque that they went to, I walked by every day on my way to work. And, you know, when I saw Black Hawk helicopters on TV, it was like moments after I saw them passing over my apartment. And so it was just like, it was a real reminder, like life is fucking short, bro. Like, and I was just like, you know what? Like, fuck it, I'll figure it out. And that's that's honestly sort of just been like my thesis. I had a conversation mm. with someone earlier today who a little bit younger, looking to raise money for a company. And he was just like, yeah, so like, you know, what's your plan? And I was just like, I don't have one. And he's like, he's like, how's that possible? I was like, I remember being in biotech. And then I remember working with the biggest artists in the world, doing random things and having a gaming company at a huge record label. And now like I help fund public goods. And it's just like, 
I, I can appreciate like the need to have some sort of control and tell yourself that there's this five-year plan. And maybe that works with like certain professions where you have like a more structured understanding of where you are and where you're going to be and what promotions look like and where you're going to live. But being that I'm fortunate enough not to be in that position, like I don't pretend to have any control over what the future holds. And as you already alluded to and mentioned, which is totally true, like I've I follow my passions until like it doesn't make sense anymore in my gut. And then I just listen to my gut. And like, you know, when I walked away from the company in 2021, like I walked away from what was would have been a lot of money had I vested it, you know, and I was just like, I, I don't give a fuck. Like, if money is meant for me, money will come my way. If mm. money is not meant for me, no matter what I do, money will not come my way. Right, right. Which, which gets back to what you're saying all about control, because those are external, you can do your part, but exactly to what you're saying, if, if it's meant to be, it's going to happen regardless if you do X or Y or Z, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's one of those things like I'm a spiritual and religious person. It's just like, if it's written for me, it'll happen. And if it's not, no matter what the fuck I do, it won't. And I'd say what's, what's also been so interesting is I grew up in an area that was really rough. Uh, and like everything was about like hustling, making money so I could buy my shoes, get new cell phones, whatever it was. And one of the things I realized was like, it took me to stop chasing money for money to start finding me, Mm. you know? And so the more I've learned to let go, the more I've found that things have come without friction. And so what I've worked at more and more as I've attained any levels of success is learning to let go more and more and just like accept that these things are not in my control. Do what I can do and let everything else be. And then just like leave it at that. Like, you know, I I think so many people have this idea in their heads of what they think they should be or what success looks like in a way that actually stops them from then attaining success. Because I'm just about like go with the flow and like live life, enjoy it. And it'll come. Totally. Totally. And, and, and it's, it's almost like when you're trying to fit the vision of success or of whatever money in your life looks like, you're trying to fit a version of life to perhaps what your ego has created rather than, yeah, you know, 100%. Letting, letting just the, as you're talking about the flow, if you're tapped into that, then you're just allowing what is to come come and and you're not putting a your own filter on how that should be because I think you, what you just said resonates a lot where it's like and I've caught myself doing it at times too, where it's like you know you want things to happen a certain way, but then if you're want if you're so married to that idea, then you there could be all this money or all the success trying to get to you. But if you're only thinking about it in this That's one it. box, then you're not going to, you know, exactly. It wants to be like, Hey, this is for exactly. you. Yeah. Exactly. You like, you miss the signals for the other opportunities that are there. And you're like, I can only be happy with like this. Right. But you don't even know if you can be happy with other things. Cause you haven't <laughs> opened your mind to the possibility of what that could look like. I mean, it was interesting, man, spending a bunch of time in Dubai last year. That's where our accelerator company was based out of and like just a bunch of our investors as well. And like 
to see the levels of wealth that I, I like, I've been around a lot of wealth. I'm not personally wealthy, but I've been around a lot of people with a lot of money. And what I saw really quickly, and I think a lot of people end up learning this after they have money and like try to chase this pursuit of like more is that once your like actual needs are fulfilled, you just start looking for shit to buy because you're looking for meaning. And so then you like buy a Rolex, but then like that, that doesn't last. Like then you need the right. gold Rolex and then you need the diamond Rolex. And then the Rolex isn't enough. You need the Patek Philippe. And when you can buy enough watches, then you need a car. And when you can do cars, you want a boat. When you want, when you do a boat, you want a jet. And, and it's just like, it's this never ending cycle that like is so clear to see has not led to happiness for fucking anybody. No. And and not to say, I would love to drive a Ferrari. Like, I would fucking love it, right? But the sacrifices that I would have to forcefully make to try to have it without it having, like, come to me, it's not worth it. And I got a chance to just see it on so many people. I think most people aren't in the position where they've, like, had the opportunity to witness it so closely to them. And so it's like, I'd see all these people and I'd be like, you have everything. Like you have a $20,000 action figure of Iron Man that's life-size sitting in your like basement. Like you've gotten to the point that like, like that's what you buy now. Not just like, <laughs> I, I fucking love Iron Man. Sure. But it's just like, you know, like at, at what point is enough enough? And I realized like real wealth ended up being in learning to to want less. And so like, as I've done that and going back to like learning to let go, what's been so funny is like seeing myself in positions to be like, Oh, I could do X, Y, Z to like make this much, or I could help close this deal. That's worth seven figures. And, and to like, be like, wait, like it took not giving a fuck to be able to start, (laughs) you know, it took not giving a fuck to being able to like be in a position to like, because there's no pressure on me. I'm not like, if the deal doesn't close my life, I'm just, I don't give a fuck, man. Like, just do the shit, like, whatever. A totally. $10,000 deal and a $10 million deal are the same fucking thing. It d- doesn't fucking matter. And at the end of the day, too, whether it's the $10,000 deal or $10 million deal, as you said before, if it's meant for you, it's going to come. So it doesn't matter if it's that deal or the next deal. There's, there's, yeah. you control what you can control. And beyond that, there's no regrets because you've it. done your part. And yeah. literally that's, I think, to, to what you're saying. It's like people, uh, it sounds like ourselves at points get uh, included. It's like you, you, you try to do things beyond your control or, or worry mm-hmm. about things that are beyond your control. And it's just wasted time, wasted energy that could be spent not giving a fuck, opening yourself up to the abundance yeah. or the, you know, the, the joy of life that's waiting for you. hundred percent. And there's just so much more to like, be able to do like, you know, go for a fucking walk, like yeah. leave your phone at home and go for a walk, like hang out with your friends, like have a good meal with your family. There are so many things like that, that I've just learned over the years that matter so much more. And like, I ordered something like dumb as fuck yesterday. That's like an expensive thing. So it's not like I'm, you know, uh, immune to wanting nice things. I think there are some people who like, they like go the route of like wanting to be like the Dalai Lama. Like, I don't pretend to be that either. Right. 
but uh but but being in a position where like I hold those things in such esteem that I'd be willing to sacrifice life in any capacity for them, like, it's not happening. Well, and, and it also gets back to the idea of intentional spending and intentional in an intentional way of living, in that if you're consuming things like I don't think both worlds to your point have to be mutually exclusive meaning you don't have to go up and and meditate on a mountaintop all day to (laughs) (laughs) to 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 attain some level of heightened consciousness or spirituality in the same way that you don't have to purchase all the items in the world in order to participate in this economic you know but but i think if we if people took a minute and thought more about what it is that they're buying and why, then suddenly there's more direction to, you know, it's, it's kind of the alignment of, of uh, it's, it, all of this I think is on the wavelength of thinking, you know, what life do you want doing what you can to get it and letting the rest kind of. Yeah. You know, and you know, one of the really interesting things I got to see is uh, the wealthiest people aren't trying to impress anybody when it comes to like stuff, right? I always saw like it was the people who just got some money, like who like, quote unquote, haven't been there before that like needed to do it all, needed to show you, needed to put it on Instagram, wanted to make a TikTok about it. And it was always the people I met with like the most fucking money. And it was just like, dude would be wearing a Timex and some sneakers that were like, beat as fuck. Right. Yeah. He didn't he didn't care, right? Because who was he looking to impress? Right. He didn't he didn't need to. Right. And that was another thing that I like there's a vibe to that that I really appreciate that like they're just like a lot more at peace with it. I mean, obviously there are some billionaires and, and rich people who are not, but the ones that I like met and got to appreciate were like, wait, you're one of the richest people on this like this specific continent. Like people like that, right? That I've had opportunities to meet. And it was just like, I would have never known if had I like not had intimate details and understandings based on the conversations that we'd had prior to the people who were making introductions. Cause they didn't give a fuck. Right. Right. Well, and 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 again, I think it comes back to it's like you're as you were saying, not giving a fuck, living your life for yourself there's power in that where you're not chasing and you're not chasing the next Ferrari or the next Rolex or the next anything yeah. externally. It's, you can kind of sit back knowing you're taking care of yourself in whatever pursuit that is. And that's it. There's nothing you're filling your own wealth. That's it. That's it. And, and it's so nice to, to not feel bound by the expectations of others or society or, whatever it is. If I want to buy something nice, I'm going to buy it. If I don't want to buy something nice, I won't buy it. And if I even do, I don't want anyone to know I have it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, sure. Yeah. It's like, I'm going out of my way to have the things for me. Uh, you know, and once you remove that, it, it just makes life better, man. And, and I think in that way, you know, going back to like the, the web three side of it, I think it's just awesome to be able to see that we're living in a time where, you know, people are getting a chance to create those lives for themselves mm. and being able to do it in remote ways. And we're getting a chance to help reimagine what tomorrow should look like based on 
the things that we feel are wrong with what today is like. My, my favorite part of being in this industry has to be that when I meet the authentic people in the space, not the shillers and the scammers, but the authentic people, all of them are just people who are hopeful for a better tomorrow and figuring out what they can do in their own way to work towards it. And that's really inspiring to be around really smart people who are going against the grain, taking a, a chance on themselves, trying to create a better tomorrow and having the humility to understand that we all need to work together to be able to make it happen and that this is what each person can bring to the table for us to potentially and hopefully get there. Yeah. And, and do you think that that speaks to the ethos of both artists and you know, heads of partnerships at, at Web3 companies where there's an understanding that the future is different in this, yeah. in this space and that collectively yeah. for success, there's just a, a reimagining and, 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 and also a re-implementation of what it means to move forward that's different from, say, a Web2 world. I think what's so interesting about it, and like, my parents are from Pakistan. Uh, and so like, you know, I was born and raised in the States, like New York, New Jersey area. But my parents are from Pakistan, they were born and raised there. And so they come from like an Eastern mentality of, you know, community first. And what I find that's so interesting about the West is the individualism that we've put into play that we've learned to pretend can actually be successful for humanity. And I think that you know, the last 100, 200 years, whatever it would be like, in many ways, we've seen the individualism just like, taken to an extreme just doesn't work. And what I see happening a lot with Web3 is that I think that we're realizing that we need to go back to community first to collectivism, like, you know, helping each other, whatever it would be, and like, separating ourselves from this hyper individualism. And I'd say that's another one of the things about the industry that I appreciate. It's that people have that humility of understanding and they're sort of finding their tribes and mm. then finding a way to, you know, take part in those tribes in the way that they can. Do you think then that as the years progress, that more and more people, as they become adopters of Web3, presumably will begin to find their tribes and then that will only impact and, and kind of hit the accelerator on Web3 adoption as more and more people find their niche and find, hey, here's a community that I can interact with both through the computer, but also in real life and have real tangible results in the real world, but also through this community that perhaps I didn't have access to or didn't know existed prior. Yeah, I honestly do think so. I, I, I'm very curious how it ends up being that there will be communities that you're sort of born or brought into, and then there's going to be other communities that you end up you know, actively taking part in. I think there's probably a lot to be learned from from places where there's developing nations and these communities and these tribes exist. I'm trying to find a way to be able to understand how it works. Like in Pakistan, like there's tribes, there's village elders, they have they do their own forms of proposals, they have their own decentralized governance, some of them have their own currencies, you know? So it's like I think a lot of the wisdom is actually already there. And so, you know, there's tribes that you're born into, there's tribes that you marry into, there's jobs that you take. And so I think we're just moving into a digitally native version of the way that humans used to live prior to this 
hyper-individualism of the West that we've been spreading everywhere. Mm. And so I've been trying to find time to be able to go back and understand what are the things that we can learn from the people who have done this already, but they just did it like without discord, you know? <laughs> right, right. Which, which, <laughs> which is essentially, as you just said, it's, I mean, that was the building of community for, you know, generations uh, mm-hmm. around different cultures and different uh, communities globally. Yeah. That's a really interesting way of putting it because it's all that the blueprint has existed for eons you for, know? for a very long time. And I think it's it goes back to like the consistent arrogance of humans to think that like <laughs> we have invented something new, like we are going to create community like five years. Community has always been around. <laughs> we were we destroyed community. We've gone to the ends of it. And now we're like, you know what would be nice? Community. Yeah, and right, right, like, right. Yeah. Well, those those extremes in certain scenarios, and clearly, perhaps in today's society, that's it, it's relevant. You have to go to those extremes in order to rein it back in and yeah. find a, a better middle ground. And I think you can think about this. Even you know, we're talking about Web three and and communities that exist predominantly online. But if you think about, I mean, in the last decade, how there's been a shift from buying groceries at a grocery store to now going back to at least here in Los Angeles, you know, oh, there I'm not saying everybody, but yeah. there's there's the reemergence of craft cocktails and yes. and coffee shops and oh homemade the butcher ice cream. and homemade ice cream. Exactly. And 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 the the leather goods guy who can work on your shoes and your backpack. Like things that perhaps in the nineties and and two thousands were were not as uh hip or cool. I don't, 100% because you yeah. wanted to go get like the designer thing that everyone else had, right? Right. And it's like, it's moving away from it. Yeah. And right. it's like, it's an awesome thing to be able to, to witness. I think like people just miss that like human element, right? Like, you know, you have your butcher that you go see or like, you know, people who love their coffee shop, they love that like minute and a half of small talk with the barista that they know, who knows them, who asks how their dog is doing or how their kids are doing or so like we've been missing those things as we moved into this like in in like insanely globalized world where like it was a status symbol not to drink at the local coffee shop anymore because you had all your Starbucks points. And so <laughs> it's it's been interesting to see exactly that like to like go for like the 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 co-ops for finding like food. I've been like in LA to be able to do that and like the great ice cream places or the the homemade burger in in place of, you know, the McDonald's Sure. And so 100% like it's at least when I've been like trying to step back and sort of look at it like that's what I've seen. It's just been surprising to me that more people aren't picking up on the fact that we're just like going back to how things used to be. I think it's like a random thing. I ended up having sushi for lunch today and sushi is like seen as like, you know, especially at the highest level, it's seen as like the food of the rich, right? Or it's a rich food, like it's expensive to eat sushi. It's not like on the cheaper end of things. And I could be wrong, so don't fully quote me, but from my understanding, the way that sushi was created was basically the fishermen that would go out to get the fish were on water all day long. And so they would just like cut some raw fish and then bring rice with them and just eat it. So it was like poor people food, right? Huh. Yeah. So it's like at its core, it's like poor people food because they were fishermen who like had no other way to do it and now we've turned it into this like rich people thing or like when we think about like we want uh grass-fed 
you know, no hormone milk. Like that is what farmers have regularly been doing forever. But it's the idea of like, when you get to like the ultimate levels of wealth, people are like trying to figure out how to simulate what the poorest people are doing. Like in Pakistan, they're all eating non-GMO chickens and like, and open range cows and things like that because they're poor because they can't go to the grocery store and pick up whatever they need to. So they're doing it this way. And so when people get like rich fuck, they're like going back and then being like, let's live like poor people for a lot of money. Let's pay a lot of money to live like poor people. (laughs) Right. So I think you're tapping into something really interesting, which is it seems there's way more similarities at the fringes, the, 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 the ends of the spectrum of society than, than perhaps we give credit for. And perhaps that's what this, you know, venture into web three and, and this decentralized, uh, world will help kind of highlight, which is, I believe it will. Yeah. I really believe it will. And I'm hoping that it does because like, the idea of being able to uplift people out of poverty and to to bring them into a global financial system that doesn't involve needing to go to JP Morgan and Bank of America and can can set that up in like these frictionless ways like DAOs themselves are so fascinating if you want to hire somebody and I was in Colombia for for Devcon you want to hire someone in Bogota the amount of paperwork and headaches and like, do they have a bank account and how do you wire it and how long it takes as opposed to like spin up a wallet, send them some like even like a native DAO token or you send them USDC or you send them ETH, whatever it is, something that has any liquidity, you can send it to them, they can swap it, they can do things with it. Uh, you know, Argentina is a place with hyperinflation. I met some, uh, some founders who started a company that's like a MetaMask competitor. And they were telling me that in Argentina, because of the inflation, it's actually illegal to trade pesos for dollars. Whoa. And the yeah, and the actual rate, if you were to look at it, it's supposed to be 120 pesos to a dollar was the number that we talked about. But they said that because it's illegal, that the only way to do it is on the black market. And if you go to the black market to get it, it's 300 pesos to a dollar. So there's a two and a 2.5x arbitrage that the black market is taking on if you want to get your hands on dollars to protect yourself against inflation. Now think about what you're able to do for people by teaching them to be able to set up just self-custody wallets and be able to figure out how to transfer currency and then just swap into USDC or USDT or DAI. And then separate from that, how you could put them in positions to use DeFi protocols like Aave or Compound to then earn yield and not like, you know, the UST 20% definitely a scam kind of thing, but <laughs> the like, <laughs> right. Yeah. But like, like, or, or Celsius, right. Like, but something that's like a, a low yield product that, you know, they're in a position where if they stayed in their native currencies, all of a sudden they're dealing with hyperinflation and can't afford to buy basic food. And this new technology puts them in a position where they're not only not losing money, they, they're actually gaining some money. And even a small yield ends up making a massive difference for them because their currency is hyperinflating in real time. So that, like even the small yield is massive profits for them. Sure. Play that out, I guess, specifically to, you know, artists, as you had mentioned, you know, working with them previously, how does this impact the, the model uh, from, from your perspective as, as we've known it previously? 
A lot, man. I, I did an article on Forefront about this uh, like two months back, maybe. But having spent time in the music industry, one of the big things that ends up happening is that a majority of things are like, like all businesses, it's just financing, right? Like that's what you end up getting. Let's say you're like a recording artist who gets signed to a major record label. You get access to distribution through relationships that are pre-existing and being able to have, you know, playlists or radio play or movies or video games. They have the relationships to set up that kind of distribution. And then they're just financing you, right? Like you're, you're a recording artist who knows how to make popular music, but like, like, what are you going to do to get your initial marketing done? Like, how are you going to do mixing and mastering and recording and like putting your music out there? And like, now there's a lot more services that make it way easier and way cheaper. But a traditional artist who's like a musician, you would figure out how to get enough buzz that you're able to go to a record label who will then say, you know, here's a terrible deal with <laughs> which it's, we're going to give you a loan and they call it in advance, but let's give you a loan. This loan has a pretty high interest rate on it. And you're then going to use this money to help support your own career by making more music and getting features and shooting music videos and putting your music out and doing marketing and promotion, all those things. But really all they're doing is like prove to us you deserve to get a loan from us. And then we're going to take a certain percentage of everything you make from merchandise to music to uh, touring, whatever it would be, brand deals. We're going to take a certain percentage of everything until this loan is paid back. But like the way the terms tend to be set up is that like most people never get out of that. And they say, oh, also in in return for, for us giving you this loan, you have to give us all of the rights to your music in, you know, for this period of time, for this number of albums, whatever it is. So you don't even own your own music. So let's say you're not an artist who puts themselves in a position where they can pay that loan back. You lose all of your creative freedom. You lose all of your IP and copyright, and you still owe the record label a big fuck ton of money, right? right? What I love about what we can do is we can reimagine the system of royalties. We can reimagine the system of, for me, it's even the, the most basic things as the initial financing. If you're an artist, especially like in Latin America, which like South American music, like it popping, like so popping right now, right? Bad Bunny is literally the biggest artist in the fucking world, yeah. right? Or you're an artist from Africa, like, you know, David O is fucking killing it. Burna Boy is fucking killing it, right? Like there are so many artists that are making like dope things. Southeast Asia, like you go look, uh, PewDiePie's biggest competitor for most YouTube subscribers is uh, T-Series, which basically hosts all of the like top South Asian music videos. And so like, there is so much potential in so many other countries and continents. And the thing that they don't have access to is the financing. That's it. They're making cool shit with so much swag that's getting them 300 million views on YouTube. But like, they don't have someone to give them a $100,000 check. And like, this sets you up to be able to have access to a global audience of people who put you in position to potentially get that funding. And if you can get that funding, you can supercharge your career. Does this mean that record labels will go away? I don't think so. I don't think they necessarily even should. I don't see it as like, the uh, like I tend to be a pragmatist in all things. 
And so I don't think it needs to be like a, a fringe thing where the record labels go away, but just imagine a world where an artist can come to the table with more leverage and, and have a conversation where they go, I'm still willing to sign a deal, but the interest rate has to be lower or the percentage that you get to take on my touring is going to be lower or I'm not going to sign for seven albums for this money. I'll sign for three albums for this money, right? So like, just give them that leverage and that opportunity to be able to empower themselves at the earliest stages where this goes in 10 years or 20 years. Like, I would be a fool to say I know exactly where it's going. But just at the earliest stages of what it takes to become an artist who's able to sustain themselves through their creativity is being able to be just financially empowered in that in those earliest stages. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm super excited about to be able to see like different generations of technology have sort of defined certain artists like, you know, being able to burn CDs and and then just sell them yourselves was like the mixtape era, like, you know, or when when streaming for like LimeWire and Napster and stuff came out, Soldier Boy used it and he would literally put up like what were the Billboard top 20 songs and he would, you know, what whoever song was famous at the moment, but he'd put his own music in there. And so they would like he like socially hacked people to downloading his music. <laughs> right. Or when it comes to SoundCloud, like and how easy it made distribution of music like Lil Uzi Vert and Lil Pump and like all of these rappers that are defined as the like SoundCloud rappers, literally like they're an era of music defined by technology. And so it's going to be really exciting to see who are the artists going to be? What will the genre be? How will it be done for the artists that end up defining the earliest stages of Web3 music? And I actually think mm. I haven't seen a single artist to date that I go, oh, you have it, right? Like you got it. That's the thing that's going to be so cool to see. Like who will be the little Uzi Vert of music NFTs, mm. you know? Yeah. And also too, you know, what in that same way of thinking how does that who will be the what will be the first show that that really yeah. is the web three uh it just as you know we look at some of the streamers of of the netflixes and the amazons and the hulus of the mm -hmm. world and it's like okay you know streaming platforms original content there that there was a, a starting point where there wasn't any original content on any of those platforms so you know what then becomes of the first original content or first original series that is perhaps crowdsourced or or there's a DAO supporting that and that gets mass adoption and awareness and you know what does that look like when i was in colombia i was thinking about this was like we've we've started moving away from everyone being happy with what we're seeing fed to us on netflix and hulu as original series it was very cool for a little while house of cards and different shows that came out that were like revolutionary and now it's mostly trash and <laughs> and like where young people are turning is like how do you set up tiktoks that end up being really popular and that's short form content that is allowing people to create you know massive distribution and again speaking to artists again like complete lack of monetization on that platform you know you have to go figure out how to do your own brand deals imagine those people could finance themselves and say you know this is really cool making one minute content, but I have this idea for a, a drug dealer show and I'm based in Brazil and know what it's really like. And I'm going to make an actual gritty series of like what it's properly like. And all I need is 
$4,000 and someone ends up putting that out on the platform uh, like that we're talking about, these next gen platforms, they get funded for a little bit of money for, you know, when you need millions to do a Netflix series, these guys will do shit for 4K, 5K, whatever it would be. And then they end up putting something out that ends up being a world sensation as opposed to another shit Netflix show. And so, you know, (laughs) you know, no, I I keep shitting on Netflix. So like shit on Amazon Prime and Hulu and whatever the fuck else there is to. Right. So like, that's the kind of stuff like it, it. It's exciting. Like, I don't know what it'll look like, but you can just imagine like, wait, like that drug dealer show from Rio is totally possible. Right. And that would actually be pretty sick. And so like how that opens up possibilities to reimagine and it would it would go back to like even what we were talking about with like the leather goods place and the butcher is like going from feeling like this like cheap made stuff isn't cool and we need the like really well produced super buttoned up and fucking Thor's and everything kind of (laughs) stuff. Right. Like to like these like random no name actors who like aren't really actors and aren't trained, but like can tell you a good, compelling story because of their life experiences. Yeah. And, and, and it will be interesting to see if, if that 4k produced Brazil show then has the legs from that. If, if, if a Netflix or an Amazon comes in and then takes it from there, you know? And so I think, I think there is an kind of a, a coexisting just as you mentioned record labels not going away perhaps there's the same too where the studios aren't necessarily going anywhere but there's going to be a different way in which people can interact with the the call it the powers that be so it's it's yeah. uh, it's really interesting to think about yeah I, I think that you know what's funny is i think one of the things and it might be like heresy for a web3 person i think a lot of people think that web3 is destroying the power structures with the intent to keep them destroyed. I don't think that's the case. I think most people are fed up with the fact that they can't win with the old power structures and they're trying to reimagine new power structures. Like I'm I'm really big on like a utopian thinking leads to dystopian outcomes. And so like I think that people are just trying to figure out how to create a world where they feel that things are a little bit more even in the playing field. And like, how do you reimagine these power structures so that we can set them up a little bit differently? Like, I don't think they ever go away. Totally. And, and on that tip too, it's, it kind of goes back to what we were saying in terms of living your authentic self and, and pursuing the things you want to pursue when that is infused within art and creation and everything like that. There's, there's something you can't really manufacture if content is coming from that place and whether or not it resonates with other people or, or, or I should say is commercially viable. There's, mm-hmm. there's a heart that you can't replicate that can never be taken regardless of, of if a piece of content is your cup of tea or not. If it's, being created from the place we were talking about before inherently people can pick up on that through their spidey sense or whatever yes you know you want to call it totally that that authenticity can be felt right and so i think what's interesting is to your point of kind of changing the power dynamic it gives people the freedom to 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 create from that place without having to hear no because another company or corporation or studio or network it says ah well you know i don't think it's going to 
fit our audience or that's not what people that's not going to sell or we're not going to be able to sell ads it's like okay well here are, are is a, is a DAO or a group of people that want to support this and here's a community that that does want what's coming mm-hmm. from the artist so here's, it's here's how to get proof of concept because the problem is a lot of the people in those positions of power are out of touch with the reality of the things that they're supposed to be green lighting like a an example i said i was watching the little baby documentary earlier little baby had the biggest album of 2020 across all genres, not biggest hip hop album across all genres, an oh, album wow. called My Turn, literally the biggest album in the world for all of 2020. And he didn't even get nominated for best rap album at the Grammys. How out of touch do you need to be <laughs> that the yeah. biggest artist in the world in a given year doesn't even get potential best album for his genre, right? And so those are the those are the kinds of people that we're going against is the people who are in the positions to vote for the Grammys are that out of touch. And you can see that across all industries. It doesn't just have to be music. And so being able to do it in this way where some proof of concept can be done or whatever it is, it, it creates more decision makers and it just like gives people more of a fighting chance. Mm. Like I don't I don't think that Web3 is 100% meritocratic. I don't think anything is 100% meritocratic, but I will say based on all of the industries that I've played around in to date, it is the most meritocratic that I've found, right? And just that is saying a lot. Like to say that it's not perfect is not where I'll land. It's to say it's way better than like like I get to be if I want to be at a DeFi protocol and essentially be in finance. I can find my way into a DeFi protocol and work my way up, not having, you know, I didn't go to Yale or Stanford or Harvard, right? But like, had I wanted to go into investment banking and private equity and traditional finance and the ways that it's done in the regular finance world, had I not gone to those schools, I could just say like at 22, like, you know, oh, like I'm not going to get that job, which means the entirety of my life trajectory is already completely altered. Hmm. That's not the case in DeFi. Yeah. You know, it gives people a fighting chance. It gives people hope. And that's the kind, that's the thing that like, I just love about this industry, man. Totally, totally. And, and as far as the industry and, 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 and hope and, and kind of what's, what's next on the horizon for, uh, for Gitcoin, maybe, maybe speak a little bit about, you know, what you guys have cooking up if you can and, and and, how that's playing into that narrative of, giving people a fighting chance. Yeah. So, I mean, it's why I love it so much at Gitcoin, but we have for going on four years now, been running a centralized grants program where we run quarterly grants rounds and there are different verticals, you know, a main round or an open source round, a climate round, a diversity, equity, inclusion round, a centralized science round, Ethereum infrastructure round, or we also have been running ecosystem round. So a a polygon comes to us and says, there are specific criteria for things that we're looking to have built in our ecosystem. And, you know, we want to use you guys as a supplement to our native grants program for people to be able to come apply, get some grant money and build the things that we need in this space. And to date, we have given out over $69 million. And that has resulted in Billions and billions of dollars in impact. I mean, grantees have been Uniswap, Optimism, Yearn, Dune, Bankless, 
MakerDAO, Wallet Connect, Ethers.js, Tornado Cat, like so many successful companies in this space were at some point grantees in the Gitcoin ecosystem. And so we're in this place now where we're actually sunsetting that centralized grants program because we don't think that there should be a small subset of people at Gitcoin who are deciding all of these things. And we're creating a decentralized protocol that we're looking to launch in Q1 of 2023, as we're putting together just various like alpha and beta rounds for testing and hoping to have a publicly available beta at the end of Q1 2023. So the future of it and like being able to give more people a fighting chance is, is honestly that is, you know, grant money has been essential. It's the lifeblood of Web3. It's, mm. it's so different than like in, in Web2 and stuff where everyone has to raise venture money. But the idea of helping fund public goods and being in a position to give money to builders is something that's essential to Web3. And it's it's awesome to be launching this this protocol in the near future. Awesome. Yeah. It sounds like then that that there's a a real strong ethos at the heart of Gitcoin of of adhering to the sort of decentralized principles that uh, we were just yeah. talking about. Yeah, 100% is like really trying to to live by those and and work at credible neutrality in us approaching the things that we do. And, and I think that this protocol really puts us in a position to do that because it opens the, it opens the floodgates to sort of anyone using it. Maybe they didn't want to run a grants round when we were running a grants round, maybe they wanted to do things a little bit differently. Maybe they didn't want the Gitcoin branding there, whatever it would be. But being that Gitcoin and quadratic funding has been such a successful experiment to date with us running it, it only makes sense to see what it would be like to do it where anyone else can do it and help expand this like narrative of being able to get access to public goods and quadratic funding and community voting with dollars and everything that comes with the awesomeness that's Gitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excited to see uh, Q1 2023 and, and beyond how how the sort of uh, new implementation of, of uh, the vision here uh, plays out. Yeah, and man. It's really going to be exciting. We're having awesome conversations with a bunch of partners and everyone's excited about it internally and externally. It's it, it's creating, you know, there's there's a little bit of chaos that we're having to figure out because there's a way that we've been doing things for years and years, and that thing is now changing drastically. And so it takes reimagining and flexibility and adaptability and and all those kinds of things to be able to be able to succeed. You know, what is what are my KPIs when prior to this it was how much money I brought into the matching pool when there's no matching pool to raise money for at the moment, right? <laughs> and everybody's positions are experiencing that kind of thing. But I think ultimately will will lead to really good things. Totally. And and as you said, it's it's like just going with the flow, you know? Yeah. Just going with the flow. Exactly. That's a hundred percent it. After many years of being in startups and everything, I think also what I've learned is like I'm really comfortable in chaos. If anything, like I'm uncomfortable in stability. Mm. Which gets back to the uh, the adage, uh, cliche perhaps, but the the only thing consistent is change. So you know, if, yes. if if you embody that in your thought processes and and way of living, then then change isn't uh, a scary thing. It's just the the norm. 
just thing. Yeah. And it's, it's fun to deal with it. Like, and experience it and sort of see how it goes. Uh, you never really know what you have in you till you're like forced to, to actually do it. And so it's fun to have your back against the wall and like, see how you can perform. Totally. And, and from that place, that's where some really cool innovation happens. Yeah. It's the, another one of the adages of, uh, Necessity is the mother of innovation. Yes. Very applicable. Awesome. Well, this has been another episode of the Lights, Camera, Crypto podcast. Azim Khan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was dope, dude. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lights, Camera, Crypto, a podcast produced by Matt Solon and Decentral Media. Music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Himes. <laughs>